Hi, everyone. I'm John Strasner. And I'm Berta Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're here because we realize that sometimes to get something done, you've got to start by breaking stuff up. We talk with scientists, artists, activists, educators, adventurers, and of course, designers who are doing incredible things to save our planet. Verda is a designer and I'm a talker. So we want to share these amazing conversations with you in the hopes that you'll be as inspired and excited by them as we are. And you'll start breaking some dishes of your own. There's no time to lose. So welcome to Break Some Dishes. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Break Some Dishes. Hi, John. How are you doing? Verda, I am doing awesome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I feel like it's been a few weeks, but I, I guess it hasn't, but it feels like it for some reason. It's because you miss me so much between our conversations that the time is always elongated. So a day without talking to me is like a dog day of not talking to somebody. That's so right. I, I understand how you feel that way. That must always- be it. I always feel that way. I always feel like we don't talk that that much. But then, of course, we we probably talk a lot more than we think we do. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Right. Well, all right. So anyways, let's tell our listeners again why we're here. Break some dishes and why we want to do that. Uh, We are trying to upend traditional design solutions. And we look outside our industry, but also inside to where the status quo is and to those places where radical change and transformation are happening. We're talking to people who cross boundaries of their disciplines and use design as a tool for change and disruption. And I think today's guest is, is right there in it. Right, John? Oh, man. Verda, I, I brought a, a fellow Yankee New Englander into the conversation today. So we have Porter Fox with us today. Porter is an author, uh, but he's so much more than that. He was born in New York, but really raised in Maine. Porter, I'm going to assume you're a New England Patriots fan, Tom Brady fan. See, uh, he's a good guy, all around good guy, just 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 from those factors alone. But lives in Brooklyn. Uh, he teaches at Columbia University School of the Arts. Um, I'm not even going to try to list um, all of the magazines and publications that he writes for, has written for, uh, has written three books. I have to tell you that I am more than halfway through your your third book, and um, I absolutely love it. You are an amazing writer who weaves the language of describing a landscape that you are, you're taking in and the experience you're having, and then I don't even realize it it happens so seamlessly. The next thing I know, I'm reading a scientific explanation of why things are the way they are. And, and the way you weave it together is is masterful. And um, thank you for, for joining us today on Break Some Damn Dishes. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for uh, for all the kudos. That, uh, that means a lot. Well, well I, I listen, I barely touched on them. So um, listen, I want to I want to start out because something really interesting happened to me this morning, Verda, when I was uh, making my morning coffee. I'm watching, I'm watching CBS, and they're talking about the fact that today, uh, November 23rd, there's no noticeable snow in Denver, Colorado. 
And I hear this and I stop making coffee and I walk over and stand in front of the TV because I'm thinking they're going to start talking about climate change. They're going to start talking about glacial, glacial, glacial recession. They're going to start talking about snow mass melting away. And they've got this chief meteorologist on. And you know what he starts talking about? He starts talking about, well, it's going to be another La Nina winter. Uh, we've got this uh, cool patch of water off the Pacific Ocean, south of Alaska. There's this warm block that's now gone. He then proceeded to talk about the polar vortex. And I just sat there and I was so disappointed because not once did anybody mention climate change. And I got so, Porter, I got so pissed off that they weren't addressing what I think is the heart of the issue here. And I'm like, wow, so that's where we're at today. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that and funny you mentioned CBS because we were uh, supposed to be filming a spot about the book and about diminishing winters. And they canned it because they had something similar that wasn't that similar, but it was sort of an ice story within the same month. Um, and they did, they actually did a big piece for uh, Sunday this morning on um, my first book, Deep, and talked a lot about disappearing snow and whatnot. That was 10 years ago. Um, and uh, so it was unfortunate we didn't get to do it this time. But, you know, there's, there's two um, perspectives that we have on snow and what's happening outside the window. And one is weather which is a short term, um, is it snowing, is it raining, how cold is it going to be next week, even how cold or warm is it this year. And then there's the perspective on climate, which is really 50 and 100 year increments that we can compare to 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And because people, human beings are so wired to be short sighted, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just kind of how we are. We recognize immediate threat. We recognize kind of immediate gratification and we really recognize immediate weather and don't totally remember who remembers what last winter was like. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, an idea of like, I got some good skiing in. There was that one storm. Nobody really remembers. And so you don't see this very slow retreat of winter out west, uh, the Denver Post called me last night and did an, an interview about this phenomenon. There's no snow, but it's not just that there's no snow. They can't even make snow because it's so warm in the mountains. And for 50 years now, 60 years, they've used snowmaking as this adaptation technique, not even really knowing the science behind what was happening. They're just like, uh, we really need to be open for Christmas and we're not getting enough snow. So we're just going to pump a lot of snow through our snowmakers. They can't even do that now. And so they, um, the outdoor editor for the Post told me that typically, I think it was Snowmass, uh, had run 200 hours of snowmaking by this point. This, you know, this winter they've done eight hours of snowmaking. Their trails are green. They're totally unprepared for winter, excuse me, for Christmas. Uh, which is a really vital time for ski areas. It's about 20 to 30% of their yearly revenue comes just from Christmas break. Um, so, you know, that's that's why it's hitting the news. Uh, and the last part of your question, the meteorologist who's talking about it, I would say 
three quarters of the meteorologists that I have interviewed for both of my books about climate change and winter um, denied that climate change was a real thing. They completely denied. I don't, I don't know what it is about meteorology. Maybe it, it is so short term and they, they are very aware of the incredibly complicated climate system that's really hard to unravel. Um, they don't really see that big picture. I'm not sure what it is, but most meteorologists from Chamonix, France to New York to um, out in Denver and up in Montana were just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what this is all about. Like we're in just a decadal change and, and it'll come back. It'll swing but back. Yeah. If you look, if you look at the 50 year trend, it's very, very obvious. Winter warming and the U.S. West has tripled since 1970. It's probably that it is so short term. I, I, I actually quoted, yeah. I wrote this quote from your book. Win- winter is not a weather event. It is in part the result of an ancient astronomical collision. And I love that quote because it makes you, it made me feel like there's, there is like this divine cosmic force that, that started life on earth and ha- has put us on this path. And we have really in the, literally in, the course of a few hundred years changed that cosmic path it's crazy yeah that's there's a statistic in there i can't remember exactly what it is but humans have changed the topography and sort of face of the earth i.e melting ice sheets changes the topography rising sea levels changes the topography more than natural forces did in the last hundred million years. In, in 200 years, we've changed the face of the earth. Order, I, I wrote that down. I, I wrote that down too. It's so funny. I, in the last two and a half centuries, man has altered the landscape of North America more than the recession of the last ice age, which is crazy. Yeah. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you got where you are today, because here's my spin on it. And tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) I feel like you started out as a probably a very talented skier. You aspired to be the penultimate ski bum and you wanted to write for Powder Magazine and and ski all over the world and do stories. And you got there. You know, after years of them ignoring you and never returning your 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 letters, all of a sudden you find yourself in the midst of a career where you are literally traveling the globe, skiing and writing about it. And then you had an epiphany or what happened to all of a sudden you started talking about the glaciers on which you're skiing more than your experience of skiing? That's interesting. And it kind of is connected to our previous conversation in that here I was working for, you know, the world's greatest ski magazine being paid to ski around the world. That was our job was to be, we had to be on the road four or five months of the year. I mean, we went everywhere. I mean, it was just crazy. We're walking through the mountains of Bolivia, Peru, and Japan, and Baja, Mexico, where you can ski, believe it or not, like trying to find the wackiest, weirdest destinations where we could write about culture, and then snow culture in a, in a very exotic part of the world. That was kind of our, our quest. Um, and still, we didn't make the connection. I read about climate change. I was an, an environmentalist. I 
I didn't make the connection. Even when I was in Peru, this is when it started to get made. And um, I think I write about this in the book where one of the farmers was saying, um, after we came down off the glacier, we were skiing these crazy first descents up in um, in these uh, peaks kind of near La Paz. And um, we came down and he said, I said, we were talking, I think we bought a goat off of him or something or like <laughs> cooking it underground in some crazy traditional way that he showed us how to do. Not for a pet. And all skis <laughs> lying around. And, and that was actually just a quick side story, such a crazy adventure where um, when uh, all the guys took off uh, to go skiing, I stayed back at camp one day and this, um, the farmer was, uh, had been watching over our camp to make sure no one stole anything. There'd been some thieves or whatever. And he says, he's got to go back to the farm and he hands me this little pistol. And he was like, this is for the thieves that are going to come steal your stuff. And I was in my ski pants and I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? So we didn't do target practice or anything, but that was a pretty crazy moment. But then he told us that his whole village had moved because there wasn't enough water coming out of this glacier anymore to support their farm. And they just picked up the whole village and they moved it to another glacier or river. And it still was like, do you remember what year that was or approximately? Uh, 90, I want to see 99 or 2000 around there. And I wrote a pitch to outside and it said, Hey, uh, I want to go ski all the glaciers, all the great descents of South America before they're gone because they're all melting and they're all going to be gone very soon. And they just were like, what are you talking about? You know, like, that's so silly. And I was like, no, no, I was there. I saw it. Like, they're definitely melting. And um, they were just like, "These, you know, they're too big. That could never happen. Pitch wasn't taken. I never wrote the story. And honestly, I didn't think about it again for a few years. Mm. Um, but the epiphany came really when I started researching that the deep that first book and i was really looking for okay climate change is happening snow is going away this industry i've worked in for 10 years is very much in trouble and what i found was sure the ski industry is in trouble but then i found these planetary ramifications of the melting cryosphere melting ice caps uh sea level rise permafrost throughout thawing water availability for 2 billion people going away once these frozen water towers were gone. It was an, another after another after another, and it was totally rattling. I mean, I had nightmares for three months, just end-of-the-world nightmares. I, I just couldn't believe what I was reading, and I wasn't reading it in magazines. I was reading these peer-reviewed uh, scientific studies that were – pretty impenetrable but this, the abstracts were, were pretty you know i could understand that at least and it just made it so clear that this was happening that i just shifted the direction of that book and started writing about climate change and snow started hanging out with uh, scientists and researchers and uh yeah and not ski bums anymore yeah but it was funny because half the scientists were skiers every time i went to an arctic research station i was like oh i have those skis like are you a skier <laughs> and they're just using at gear to get around and they grew up in the mountains of colorado and so it's a definite overlap well in in your book you know you you write about this guy who's seems like a insane skier birdman yes right yes so i found it interesting that he has a place in your narrative explain that it was completely random chance 
I, I needed a connection. I had read about the connection between wildfires in the U.S. West and uh, a lack of spring snowpack there. And lack of spring snowpack, there's there's a million square miles of spring snowpack in the northern hemisphere that is now just gone. That is since 1970. So spring snowpack is really the accumulation of all our snowpack throughout the winter. And that spring snowpack is what waters farms, what fills the Colorado River, what waters forests, um, like not just little stream habitat, but like the entire U.S. West. Yeah. And reflects the sun. And it reflects the sun, which keeps all of that area cooler. Um, I think I think it's in the book that 75% uh, around there of all the precipitation in the U.S. West falls as snow, not as rain. And it sits there and it slowly melts and it slowly dissipates this water out into the landscape. Um, and that is what keeps trees healthy and not dry and like a tinderbox. Right. And as that water supply goes away most of the large fires in the west are now starting in regions that were once covered by snow and now they're not and so it's just like fires are bigger fires are faster fires are like outside of the season anyway i had to get to twist where there was a fire there was snow there were skiers there were firefighters the the convergence of these two worlds was right there and this really classic town-owned homemade ski resort um, and Bird was a friend of a friend who had told me about this whole scenario. So he was my first point of contact. Okay. And okay. Little did we know that we actually had friends in common. Yeah. Some tragedies in common, yep. some worlds that very much overlapped. And, and he really guided me through the first part of that story. Yeah. When I uh, opened up the last winter and started reading, I was surprised that it started with with a fire, right? Instead of snow. Intentional. <laughs> yeah. Or icebergs or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, that book is just out this November. Yeah. November 2nd. But yeah. And I'm excited to finish it as well. And I just wanted to back up a little bit because you have an MFA as well. And I think that just wanted to recognize that you're really coming from this, from an artist perspective, right? A storyteller and, and, and that craft. Absolutely. And that, and that route was, so fortuitous for me. I went to uh, New York City from Powder to study fiction, to study short story writing, the, the technique of fiction. I was accepted as a fiction writer. And as I got my MFA in fiction, started getting stories published, really started kind of tapping into the, the artistic side of writing that I had always wanted to do. I had been a reporter prior to that, which is very straight and narrow. I started going to the Harvard Neiman uh, Narrative Nonfiction Conferences, which are point blank on the cover of the program, using the elements of fiction to tell a nonfiction story. Mm -hmm. And that is what John McPhee does. That's what Ian Frazier does. Um, that's what, you know, parts of the perfect storm are like this. It's this creative way of telling nonfiction stories. And that's what I've been studying for the last 15 years and um, absolutely fell in love with this two worlds kind of merging together. Yeah. Storytelling is so powerful. <laughs> Although I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. I'm not sure you want to sell your book because I think that one of the last chapters is titled, The World is Brutal. Be happy you're <laughs> not dead yet. 
<laughs> Verna, you exactly. and I are like taking the same notes. That never happens. <laughs> I mean, that's straight from that's straight from from this this Inuit seal hunters that we were hanging out with with this unbelievably refreshing perspective on life. That was just like stop worrying so much. Uh, you know yeah. this this thing about like. Why are you afraid of dying? What did you think was going to happen at the end of your life? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of this light bulb went yeah. off and I was like, wow. So true. It makes me feel like we've gone past the point of no return. We have gone. I think we all can agree to that. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about adaptation versus mitigation. And a lot of people want to still believe that we can win this war, that we can mitigate our way out of this problem. but you know, maybe it's more of an issue of conditional defeat, knowing that we're we've lost, we're, we're going to lose. There's a lot of things that we're going we're to lose all these these glaciers and uh, things like that. And um, maybe we need to regroup in the service of long term survival for as many of our species as we can. I don't know. It's it's a grim thought, but yeah. When I was talking to the um, editor from the Post last night. I was pretty surprised to hear uh, some doubt in his voice about climate change and whether it's really going to spin out of control or not. And I kind of was like, what are you reading or what are you not reading? Yeah. Um, and I told him, listen, and he was like, is it really worth it? You know, maybe it's already out of our hands. Is it worth it to, to do these really difficult changes in our society to try to slow it at this point? And I said, well, listen, if your house catches on fire, and the east wall of your house is burning. Do you call the fire department, fire department, and say, "Don't worry about it. Like it's not worth coming over. Like the east wall is already on fire, so let's just not deal with this." And I was like, "If the fire department gets there fast enough, like maybe they can save half the house. Maybe they'll save three quarters of the house. And wouldn't that be a better result than losing the entire thing?" Mm -hmm. So at this point we've absolutely passed certain thresholds and um, tipping points. Um, certain things are going to be out of our hands, but other things are not out of our hands at this point. The frozen permafrost, you know, that has millions of tons of greenhouse gases frozen in that permafrost yeah. has not thawed yet. Yeah. If it thaws, it could warm the planet many more times than we ever did. Right. But that hasn't happened yet. The ice caps are melting at a historic rate. Some are beyond the point of no return. Some are not. Some of that could be saved. So why would we not do our very best to just put the fire out and save some of the house instead of walking away and deciding to really never have a house ever again? So that's, that's why um, we need to find our biggest lever push that lever right now for everyone. Voting is your biggest lever for businessmen and billionaires and whatnot they have other levers to work with i have a lever which is my writing and mostly work i do for the new york times has a big impact so i can use that but you find your biggest lever and you put all your weight behind it and and that's what we can do at this point to try to get past the point of no return in terms of activism get the, the yeah. zeitgeist across the country and world to really yeah get behind this. You know, I, I think when I hear you tell stories about people that are still, you know, the meteorologists that still are denial in denial and, and 
you know, I, I wonder how people can be because the conversation is so scientifically fact-based. How do you argue with the metrics that scientists are, the data that scientists are sharing? But one of the things that you talk about in your book, Porter, is, is all of the feedback loops that exist, right? And, you know, I, I made a note here, a lot of the climate deniers single out tidbits like natural causes, not humans, sometimes change the Earth's climate. Um, and what makes it this a challenging conversation to have is that they're not, climate change drivers are not mutually exclusive, right? And so I think sometimes people can look at the exact same data and decide to decipher it in completely different ways. Exactly. I mean, you heard for many years people saying, hey, the deniers say there was no warming between 1998 and 2010. It was a flat line. And if you look at the actual, you know, NASA's line of what their, you know, measurements you know, read, it, it was true. It was a flat line. But the reality was that 98 was an extremely hot year, unbelievably abnormal. 2010 was pretty low. It was a pretty normal year. Mm. And so you get that flat line. If you zoom out, you see this absolute like side of a mountain, you know, rise in temperature from early 1900s until now. And it kind of goes up and it flattens and it goes up and it flattens and it goes up and it flattens. These are step changes. And that's how the world warms. It doesn't just go up a degree every year. It goes up every, let's say, 10 to 20 years, um, you're getting a, a percentage of degree yeah. warmer. So they'll just pick out the zoom in on that little spot, take that and take a screenshot, put it up on Facebook, tell all their friends, look, this is a NASA chart. No warming between 98 and 2010, which back then was like no warming between 98 and today. And just completely mislead all of these people because their worldview does not include climate change. Some of them, it doesn't include human beings' power to change universal type things. That's a common religious kind of refrain. Um, there, there are a lot of things that keep people, a lot of it is fear. The fear that this is actually happening and that their kids are going to suffer, um, which they are if we keep down, going down this track. Um, so it's, it's really crazy to hear the deniers saying these things and they will grab any random statistic the statistic in the book about do you really want a picture of how much snow and ice has melted on the planet it has changed the rotational axis of the earth the way the earth spins an alien looking at earth from space sees a wobble now that was not there 30 years ago so much mass has melted off the poles into the ocean and redistributed that mass around the planet that it changed the rotational axis of the earth. I put that up on um, Twitter or something recently, got a ton of response. And then the deniers kick in and they're saying, well, how do you know? And I'm like, how do you know that the meteorologist report is going to be sunny tomorrow? Exactly. <laughs> or how do you know that the mechanics said that your radiators cracked? Yeah. Like, how do you know? You know, it, I honestly think we don't need to focus on the climate deniers. I mean, it's distressing, and but I, I try yeah. to set it aside. I mean, the statistics around the world are that 
overwhelmingly over 50%, in some cases up to 80% of populations do believe in climate change that it's happening. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, I'm part of a couple of climate groups. Um, one is the Climate Reality Project that Al Gore started. And it started out 15 years ago trying to educate people around climate. And I'm I'm part of a co-chair of a committee where we're like, okay, it's we're beyond that. We need to actually look for action. And I love that you talked about action. I'm part of another group called Extinction Rebellion. And like you don't you only need to convince 10% of the population, 10% of activists in the population to get out there and protest to to start affecting change and so that's what we really need to focus on let's let's not even dwell on absolutely yeah. we solve for climate tomorrow they're gonna say see told you so <laughs> there's no climate yeah change. you're right <laughs> you're right you know i did a piece for the times last year about all of the representatives um uh in dc that came from uh, mountain counties in California, in Colorado. Um, and it was just unbelievable. Um, Corey, what's his last name? He just lost his seat. Thank God. I'd like to think it was because of my article, but either way, he lost his seat. And, and he was like from Summit County in Colorado or somewhere around there and had not voted for a single climate change piece of legislation in like eight years. Yeah. And they kept voting him back in. Oh my God. And their, and their tax base is so dependent on the ski industry. And, and still the voters like either didn't know or didn't care, or I I can't quite put it together, but he did, he did lose a seat and um, see what Biden's doing right now. I mean, it is the right thing to do for humanity, not just for liberals, not just for Democrats, for humanity. That should have been done all throughout Barack, Obama, Barack Obama's tenure. All through, For the last 20 years, we should have been enacting legislation like this. Yeah. And we would be in such a better position. Yeah. It's just crazy that within our lifetimes, we're seeing this pivot. Yeah, yeah. It, sh- it should have been 10,000 years you see this pivot. It's in 20 years you're seeing it. Tell us a little bit about the science behind uh, you actually joined an expedition in Antarctica, right? And where they were taking core samples. Alaska, yeah, Alaska, uh, Juno Ice Field. Okay, yeah. I'm amazed at, at what these scientists are able to get from these core samples that they drill for. It's it's unbelievable. I would say, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but a huge percentage of the accuracy of current climate models, which tell us how bad is it going to be, how fast do we need to back down from carbon, how fast do we need to cut emissions. That is the big question right now. And so much of, of that data that refines those models is coming from ice cores. So in an ice core, as you go down, you are essentially getting into ice that was formed originally as snow that fell. As it compacts, it slowly turns to ice. And as those feathery crystals turn into solid ice, they trap air bubbles. They trap volcanic ash smears from giant volcanic uh, events. They trap um, ocean salt down in Antarctica. Um, I think I wrote about this in the book where they trap traces of lead 
in the atmosphere that correspond to the rise and fall right. of the Roman Empire. Right, when they were minting coins. Yeah, they were ah. used lead in their, in, when minting coins. Crazy. I mean, they, they, they can track so much world history by just what is in this ice core and analyzing it. And the air bubbles are a frozen, they're going for a million year old ice right now, this Australian expedition in Antarctica. It'll take them three years to get down there. A previous expedition was two years in and they broke the bit, which plugs the hole, which means total stop, game over. And they had to retreat and basically regroup and whatnot. So these guys have three years to get to this million year old ice. In that ice will be air bubbles. That air bubble will be the exact atmospheric content of nitrogen, oxygen, CO2, um, everything frozen in time from a million years ago. It's stunning what they can get um, from that, that data. Yeah. And all that ice is melting so fast that these teams that really just learned how to analyze these ice cores, like every year, it's just they learn something more and more and more. It's a rapidly developing um, science, physiology. And now they're running around the world because those ice cores are, it's all melting. Like these giant glaciers in the Himalayas, giant glaciers in Antarctica are disappearing and melting from the bottom up as well as the top down. As it comes from the bottom up, you're losing the oldest ice first mm. and all that data just runs away. So it's, it's a, it's an absolute race right now. National Science Foundation and many others are just pumping money into ice core drilling operations, just hoping they can get some more answers before it's all gone. Even NASA's contributing, right? Are, NASA's you- contributing. And now NASA is using the, the technique and the kind of knowledge and science coming off places like the Juno Icefield Research Program. Um, that uh, my host there, Seth Campbell, was running, and they tap him to help them develop an ice core drilling unit for the Mars rover. Right. The right. next Mars rover that goes up is going to drill ice cores on Mars. And now there's another um, expedition going to one of the moons of Jupiter that is going to drill uh, ice cores there and look for signs of life, signs of water, and just you just get this map of what happened on that planet for the last million years. It's yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. I, you know, one of the things that Berta and I uh, have been able to do with our podcast is talk to a lot of people that are, are in the midst of solutions, mm-hmm. right? They're working with new materials that are, are going to make an impact, a positive impact. So you're kind of mired in, in the, the the midst of all of the negative effects of, of climate change, how do you, how do you stay positive for you? Where's the silver lining in in all of this? I mean, it's hard. It's so weird how the starting this book and starting the first book deep. Um, I I really do have nightmares. You know, when I started this book, it was the same thing. It was maybe only a month and a half or so, um, and and it really is heavy what you're researching but when i talk to the scientists who are so classically like unemotional about all of this they're so by the book yeah and just like well you know this could happen this could happen um but the silver lining is seeing how much they have learned just in just the last decade 
um, how much they have learned about everything from maybe the model is a little bit different and maybe we have a little more time. Uh, sometimes it's the opposite way and they say maybe we have a little less time. Um, but they are dialing that in um, all the way to geoengineering solutions where suddenly carbon capture might be more possible than we once thought, um, which could radically help our situation um, to, you know, I, I hate using those as examples because it makes people get lazy and say, oh, well, they'll, they'll figure it out. I'm getting that SUV, you know? Yeah. Um, all, all of this needs to happen. We all need electric cars. We all need to get off fossil fuel. They need to figure out carbon, carbon capture simultaneously, as well as many, many other uh, mitigation and adaptation um, techniques. So with all of that coming from the scientific community, it's almost like you're really sick and you go into the doctor and the doctor's like, here's what we can do. And, and you just feel better. You're like, okay, somebody's in charge here. <laughs> you got options. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about climate change here, which is what we wanted to do. But to go off topic, I would love to hear you tell us about your favorite ski experience. Do you have anything that oh my God, stands out? So I many. can't imagine. <laughs> it's like asking to tell us about your favorite child. I was I was so blessed. I got so lucky with that powder gig and, and the people that I worked with were just the funnest, most generous, kindest, just great people. We would launch off around the world. We had to fill the magazine. I mean, we had, it was just crazy. I remember flying from the ski industry trade show in Las Vegas, which we were required to go to. It was kind of a painful event with PR people everywhere and ad people everywhere. And I jumped on a plane with my skiing hero, Mike Catrip from, you might remember him from the Blizzard of Oz, that great Greg Stump movie. He was a pro skier when I was in high school. and I absolutely idolized him. Lo and behold, he's the athlete on the story um, who's going to come and be a guide and a skier and have pictures taken of him going down the scene. We fly to Turkey and we have a layover for a day. Uh, before we fly into the Taurus Mountains of Turkey, which uh, after which we will get onto a farm tractor with all of our gear and a photographer and another skier and drive up into a base camp at the foot of these mountains. And then we'll hike and ski um, in the Taurus Mountains, these extremely steep, crazy couloirs that were up there, um, which we eventually found. But the day layover in Istanbul, we were like, well, we better go see the sites and we had our ski boots around our necks because you always, I don't know, we always travel that way. I didn't want anyone to lose my boots. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was my carry-on. And we go to, uh, is it the Blue Mosque? I think it's called the Blue Mosque, which was, uh, it, it sort of bounced back and forth uh, during the Crusades of being um, an Islamic mosque and then a, uh, a Christian cathedral. And depending on who ran Istanbul at the time, and you can still see Christ on the cross painted on the wall over here with the dome of the mosque over here. And it's all thousands of years old. And there are people praying on their knees on carpets all around. And we just sat in the middle of this mosque with our ski boots around our necks and didn't say a word. And we're just like, where are we? Ended up, you know, going skiing. I mean, they were just so... Yeah, uh, the photo editor from Powder, Dave Reddick, and I went to Bulgaria to 
uh, investigate this giant, larger than Jackson Hole, huge resort built by the Soviets um, during their communist occupation of, of Bulgaria. And then they split and the place was sort of abandoned and was trying to like get the lifts running and whatnot again. And on our way there, our hosts, who were a little kind of ski club that were going to show us around, drive us from the airport straight to the radio station, which was the only national, it was like NPR, um, but it was shortly after 89. This was 90, now it's probably 2000, something like that, 10 years, 11 years after. There was still just one national radio station. Marches into a studio. There's a young guy in there who wants to interview these U.S. journalists coming to look at this giant ski resort that a lot of kids remember from their ski trips, you know, with the communist sports teams. But that was a big thing for them was youth athletics. Um, And we sat there and spoke to every single household in Bulgaria about powder skiing and how we arrived there and what we planned to do and places that we'd been. And boom, then we're back in the taxi and up to the resort. And we get there and the the owner of the resort had rented us a helicopter for the week and it was parked outside our hotel. And they said, just use it. We'll go wherever you want. (laughs) Take it wherever you want. And we were using it to fly to these peaks and skiing down. And one of the skiers, one out. That was insane. It was terrible for the environment. That was, that was pre. <laughs> hey, let's go get some burritos. Okay. Exactly. One of the skiers was like, oh, I left my hat back in the hotel. And they flew him back to the hotel. He gets his hat and another pair of skis, throws him in the chopper. We go back up. And they didn't have ski cages. So we were tying the skis to the skids with twine, oh, which was yeah. like Sounds so dangerous. Safe. It was Sounds such safe. a terrible idea. <laughs> Uh, it was just like that every trip. It was so crazy. Wow. A lot of fun. Amazing. Well, <laughs> you've come a long way, clearly, from your uh, ski bum days. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, What's next for you, Porter? What's next? Um, you know, believe it or not, I'm already working on my next book, and um, I can't really say what it is, but it, it is related to climate change and um, kind of another another group of group of folks who are discovering some really interesting trends happening in the climate world. So I'm going to be traveling this winter and probably into the spring and then researching and writing for the next year or two. Okay. Um, But yeah, right now I'm really just working on, we moved from the city upstate and um, in the middle of the pandemic and I'm just kind of working on our house, enjoying a little quiet time. <laughs> you may not be the only person that's done that. You, you may be, there may oh be a few gosh. others, right? <laughs> that's insane. We'd been come. we actually got our place um, six years ago. So we, we had a place to go land. Yeah. Um, but we've been watching the insane migration out of New York, San Francisco, a lot of cities. And uh, yeah, it's, it is a, a demographic shift that I don't think, we totally comprehend yet. Um, yeah. New York is a very different place now. And this whole Valley is, is very different as well. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm excited to continue reading. I have, I am just, you, you got me on the first page. I am just gripped. I want to know what uh, happens to the, to the sledding dogs and who gets out safely. Uh, and I yeah. love how it's interwoven. Like you t- you, there's a couple of, paragraphs about that and then you start to go into the science i'm actually thinking about my dad's a science a soil scientist so he does a lot of oh, core. Drill. I, I i grew up with core samples all over our house 
And, oh, um, you know. and I'm thinking about getting him this book for Christmas. So super wow, excited to, to finish it. I, I got a great writing tip. I'll pass it on to your listeners. I think it goes for all art that uh, my, my mentor and really terrific teacher in my MFA program said, always keep your readers off balance. Mm. And I grew up the opposite. And we all learn the opposite in school. Have your thesis statement, your supporting sentences, your supporting paragraphs. Say what you're going to say. Say it. Say what you said. All of these ways of really hammering home that message. But a really good read is when you don't quite know where you're going next and, and you want to find out. That's what keeps me flipping pages in John McPhee's books and, and uh, my favorite writers. So hopefully I'm, I'm, that's what I aspire to. That That's a perfect note to end on for sure. I, I have to tell you too that I've never read a book uh, before where I've taken such interest in your footnotes at the end of each chapter. Because usually they're very businesslike. It's like, okay, this is where yeah. I got that fact. This is where I got that quote. Yours are not. Yours are actually, you you fill in some gaps. So I'm like, well, I got to get back to that footnote there. What's he say? Oh, yeah. No. Exactly. Right? I never yeah. read footnotes. And, I, and no. my editor was like, I think we need some footnotes in here. Let's have some fun with them. And I was like, absolutely. Oh, I love this yeah. idea. Yeah. I'm glad I noticed it. So. Excellent. Yeah, cool. Well, Porter, thanks for joining us today on Break Some Dishes. It was phenomenal to be able to chat with you a little bit. And thank you for bringing so much um, knowledge and awareness to to this climate change topic. And I'm glad that you've got another book cooking. And I'm glad that you're going to continue the uh, the battle of changing minds. And let's just keep on going, man. You don't have a choice. So No, we don't. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank Our you, pleasure. Pardon.